the kind of contemplation a queer person has to go through to arrive at a state where they can accept that and know that about themselves and to actually be integrated as a person dealing with all of that, that's something that's extremely impressive. And I think every person should try to go through and figure themselves out in some of those same ways, the same pathways that queer people automatically have to go through. I think it's a beautiful roadmap for all of humanity, whether you're queer or not. I think that's a gift. Welcome to Communion and Shalom. In this podcast, we are exploring how the biblical and historic Christian faith can engage sexuality, ethnicity, culture, and our local communities as we pursue the flourishing of God's kingdom. Our goal is to engage these topics charitably and with nuance. Hello, everybody. In our last episode with Will and Michelle, we dug into different ideas of what we or others might mean in describing ourselves as queer or talking about queering kind of cultural norms. Now we want to talk about kind of what does that look like for you not just to see queerness of whatever variety that may be, same-sex sexual attraction, as just a source of remorse but also seeing the nuances around it, seeing where God has brought, has given you the capacity to bring good into this world. There's this particularly fun quote from W.H. Auden that I want to share. He says, Though I believe it sinful to be queer, it has at least saved me from becoming a pillar of the establishment. <laughs> and... I think that's just such an interesting quote where he's like, he's, you know, he's wrestling with this, this reality that he's like, oh, I have this sin in my life where he was at different times in his life uh, engaged in a homosexual sexual relationship that he, in his Christian faith, saw that way I'm engaging that relationship is sinful. But he's seeing that, oh, there's something that me not being, you know, straight has kept me from being, you know, a pillar of the establishment. What are some of the ways that, TJ, I don't know if you want to throw in on ways that, I mean, I could just say like for myself that I'm like, wow, I'm, <laughs> I'm really thankful I'm gay. I'm really thankful that I didn't, do not just have the, the most normal heterosexual attractions because of the way that it's caused me to question our cultural norms around marriage about around companionship it, it's opened up to me to see oh what is i have i've had to question and think about what really is marriage for and not just to to follow the scripts as yeah. we would say the game and it, it's made me be more reflective uh -huh. because both in like oh yeah what what's sin what's righteousness um that doesn't mean i've just followed my inclinations in whatever way queer culture may want them to go, but I've I've been forced into this place of tension that has actually brought about a lot of source of joy in the ways that I've then intentionally cultivated my communities and my relationships and sought to live my life in faithfulness to God. Amen. I would say for me, it's, I mean, it's often been hard. It's been a struggle in a certain way, but it has been very generative as a Christian disciple. And part of that is kind of based on like the socio-political position of queer people in a lot of contexts in the contemporary world, I've seen what it means to have to be merciful to the marginalized, right? 
Because when I've seen myself be marginalized or others be marginalized who are queer, I realized, well, what's the call of the Christian discipleist context? And that made me more merciful, maybe more hospitable, made me more willing to fight for justice, like pursuing justice for the for people who actually suffer. And those are a few things about a socio-political position. I also like uh, Aden's quote, in part because it reminds me that queer people, as you mentioned, can sometimes see, we see beyond just the the common way of doing things, right? Because in a lot of ways, we don't fit the common ways, at least in Christian contexts, we don't fit the common ways of trying to have a life, you know? Marriage may not be our common path. And Aden's showing that at least, like at least I'm not a pillar of the establishment, at least I just don't fall into the common dominant structure, power structures that exist in this context. I also do want to mention, and this blurs a little bit into the question of like ontological inherent versus sociopolitical position. And I'll mention this, we talk about this later in the podcast, but potentially queer people, maybe a genius for friendship. There's something there, right? That could be inherent, especially if you take a definition of queer, where queer is a particular special orientation towards the same sex in some way. You know, that actually, I mentioned, I was reading just a few paragraphs out of Plato's Symposium, where he's talking about the men who seem to be more drawn towards kind of partner together mm -hmm. uh, bodily, sexually with other men, that those are the men who take higher positions in society, that they they come in to have virtues of being really civilly engaged and helping run things in the, you know, in the city and uh, yeah. the police and the government. And I kind of wonder to, to go off that, I think in the middle, this is just a guess, I'm not sure. I assume some of the celibate people in the medieval, medieval Europe were what we call queer now, right? And they often occupied priestly positions, right? Or they occupied secular priestly positions where they were involved in governance in some way, the bishops or whatever. And this is speculation, obviously, <laughs> but, I, but I think there's something to what Plato's saying. Or even when you, if queerness draws you to someone of the same sex, it's easier to form like public, I don't know, alliances to accomplish certain endeavors. Whereas if you marry and have kids, a lot of your energy and time is hypothetically often engaged in that sort of endeavor, you know? Yeah. And even Plato himself was, you can tell he's in a dialogue because he said, some people call these men shameless in the way that they open themselves up to sexual relationships with other men, and particularly as to be like uh, on the like tutored by other men, and that you know had in the pederastic sexual relationships. So there were people who were saying, "Oh no, this is shameful behavior." But he tries to then argue for what he notices going on in society. Well, these same men who are and what we might actually say is shameful, you know, shameful behavior that doesn't fit into God's plan sexually, that yet there was still something notable about these types of people. Uh, and so can you, yeah, can we draw our attention to those other notable features and not just the potential sinful uh, connections as well? Definitely. I've also been in my Christian discipleship, I've had to be humble, become more humble, and I think humility is a great, a great virtue in the Christian life because I've realized what it is to like struggle with sin. Yeah, struggle with sin and not know what to do. So maybe more humble, and part of this is mercy, but humble towards people who choose differently than I do, I guess, or who struggle even differently than I do. Because I see, I see, you know what it is to struggle, right? So you can't have the same pride that... I'm the I'm the righteous one who does all things right, or I'm a, I have the best way of life, or I can easily just live a good life because I've struggled, 
And I think there's something to that. Do you mean that just in terms of like struggling as a sinner or struggling as even just like navigating your way through life? I mean, I would say both. Can I also throw another piece out there? Um, I recently was watching, this was on Life on Side B, which is a Side B oriented podcast or a podcast that also exists. And they were interviewing Misty Irons, who we've recommended in a previous um, short episode for her talk at Revoice of last year, I think, 2021, right? And she mentioned that she often sees God in the margins and God is up. The Holy Spirit is working the margins, even when sometimes the dominant players in the church don't see or don't want to see, right? And I think queer people being on the margins in, at least in this context, and a lot of contexts in the world right now, there, there's, we see God working in ways that people may not expect, you know, like God is there and God is blessing queer people and God is, he's blessing queer people's reflection because we're actually trying to figure out something that's complicated or that's not the dominant way or a way that has been, there's like silences in the tradition or there's ways they've glossed over some of these hard questions that we're trying to ask in our time, you know? And we're asking these questions and contextualizing in our time what it means for doing this. And we're trying to resource from other other times, other eras, other places, Christian tradition and not, to ask, answer these questions. And I think there's a, of course, I, I'm positioned in a certain way, but I think the Holy Spirit's there. He's blessing. There's a blessing there, right, in this this pursuit. And I'm thankful that I'm queer in that way because I'm thankful that I'm part of this project of the kingdom, at least the way I see it, project of the kingdom, trying to under determine what, like faith-seeking understanding, determine, like, God, what is your path in this situation, in these circumstances that we live? And like, what do we do with it? What are the options? What can we imagine would be a faithful way for queer people to live? Mm -hmm. And that really resonates, I mean, just with my my heart for building community that it's like, oh, yeah, I care about for those who are on the margins, who are really feeling the lack of community. Mm -hmm. But I see how this is actually a huge need in the church at large. And that I've been given, you know, more of a special, a special gift, a special opportunity to to bring that witness for the whole church. Yeah. So just that way that the spirit is working on the margins and, and showing uh, where he needs, is desiring to work his redemption. As I'm excited for us to to to, ha, to listen to this conversation with Will and Michelle in discussing these things more in depth, I want to make a, a quick note about our mixed feelings around the fact that there's a, a rising queer identification in our population, especially among the youth. While we really do see the Holy Spirit working on the margins in some special ways, <laughs> Michelle kind of mentions it later, like, every person is indeed special. Um, everyone is indeed gifted by God, by his Holy Spirit. And so while there are notable ways that we can see that happening among the quote-unquote queer community, while indeed there are special ways that we see that queer people might be gifted or positioned, I don't want any of our listeners to feel like they are unspecial if they're not queer. <laughs> um we want it to be an encouragement for people who do feel like they are queer. But if you aren't or you end up realizing you're not as queer as you thought you were, that's fine. There's different ways that I sometimes feel that way. I'm like, I don't know if I'm as queer as maybe that other person. <laughs> and that's fine because that's not 
ultimately like what matters in and of itself, but it's what we see God doing in and through us. Um, and we're just trying to name some of those ways that that has happened in our lives with respect to queerness. So let us go back into the conversation with Will and Michelle. What are these ways that our experiences in, you know, quote unquote queerness have opened us up or helped us, you know, pursue goods or you know, bring about goods uh, in our communities that it's both valuable, I think, to say, hey, out of my particular experience, it maybe does relate to the way that I've engaged with queerness, but let's not let that create its own norm. Let's make sure to keep subverting that, <laughs> that like kind of story that would overly force other people to think that like in order for you to bring goods into your community or to discover things about yourself, you must be queer. Because <laughs> that's, I think, something that does happen at times in our culture, which is a bummer, but I, I won't get down that, that rabbit hole at the moment. But I'd be curious to hear just more, what are some of those particular ways you would say goods have emerged out of your experiences as queer people? I would say just the kind of discernment that any queer person has to go through, I think, is something that everyone, other queer people and non-queer people alike, should look at and use as an example in their own lives as they're trying to connect with God and the people around them and themselves. I think it's really important. And it's something that's just inherent to queerness. Um, queer people are automatically living in a world that is the game. They're part of the game, as Will would say, or they're not part of the game, excuse me. Um, you're thrown in a world where everything points in one direction. And at some point, whether it's early on in your childhood or it's later on in life, you start to realize, like, no matter what I do, I cannot play by the rules of this game anymore. It's just not working. Maybe you're bisexual and, you know, you have been able to blend in because you are experiencing attraction to the opposite gender. So everything seems normal from the outside, but like you're still bisexual. There are still things that you have to think about that other people don't. You're still experiencing attraction to other people that are of the same sex. There's still all these different things that you have to think about. As an asexual person, I didn't think I knew something was a little off, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I thought maybe I'm a very closeted bisexual because I had never even considered the possibility of not being able to experience sexual attraction to other people. That wasn't something that was real. Even when people explained to me, oh, I'm asexual. This is how I experience the world. Things just didn't click because I was so entrenched in the game. People experience sexual attraction. And I guess there's a couple of gay people on the fringe and they're over there and we're over here. It was difficult to be able to put my experiences together to be able to even comprehend that that might be a possibility for me. I was totally open to queerness. I had a lot of gay friends. I was all for it. It wasn't even like a homophobia response. It was just, this is how life is. So there is no possible way for my experience to not fit into that. So the kinds of self-exploration that a gay person or a queer person or someone that's not cisgendered has to go through to discover those things about themselves, has to go through to establish this is not a bad thing about me, even though it's 
it is queer. It's not normal. It's not what I see on TV. It's not what my most of my friends might be growing up. It's not what my community, my parents, my church members are. It's still good. It's still something that gives gifts to the world. That's a very difficult thing to arrive at unless you have a lot of support, and most people don't. So the kind of contemplation a queer person has to go through to arrive at a state where they can accept that and know that about themselves and to actually be integrated as a person dealing with all of that, that's something that's extremely impressive. And I think every person should try to go through and figure themselves out in some of those same ways, the same pathways that queer people automatically have to go through. I think it's a beautiful roadmap for all of humanity, whether you're queer or not. I think that's a gift. Can I go off of that? Going through that process in general made my like my posture toward interpreting others or interpreting ideas, like being willing to appreciate complexity and nuance way more mm -hmm. and having the humility, like it, it grew my humility, like that virtue that I could be humble enough to understand just people's complexity in figuring out certain things about themselves and to actually realize that something can have both uh, like eat disorders and goods or evils and goods, or mm -hmm. like it's not, it's not so simple as just that's bad. That's good. Mm -hmm. But you can actually provide like, uh, like more reflective evaluations of situations at hand and kind of Michelle, what you're saying that process that made, that really changed my framework, like my models of interpreting the world, having to go through that process myself. Or again, as you said, or as Will said, you're not like the game, the game is different. The cultural scripts are not yours. It produces that humility. It produces that complexity that as you engage the world. So, yeah, I think kind of what you both are saying, I think that the, the, one of the gifts and unique things of queerness is the, is that gift of being able to discern right so many like gay friends that i have even if they haven't studied these things officially are kind of like their own little theologians or like therapists or sociologists yeah. or theorists and then many of them for some reason like i wonder why this could be you know a lot of them do end up pursuing like higher ed like i know mm -hmm. so many queer people who are like either licensed therapists or getting degrees in like clinical mental health counseling. Why is that? You know, but I also think that there is, I think there's something very special about that lived sense of discernment. Like you're not doing it in abstraction, you're doing it in a lived way. And it's often about your own self. So in some ways, the one kind of person you can be the most honest with is yourself, but also in some other ways, you're your own worst critic and not always good at discerning things about your own being, right? So it's like, as you're trying to make sense of sexuality or morality or sexual ethics or a Christianity or any kind of religion or spirituality, like it really hits home because it has something to do with you. You know, it isn't just something you're deciding about other people out there. It's something that you have to live into. And I think it's that living into a thing and not just say studying a thing. And like, I'm not trying to like gatekeep our straight allies from like talking about this stuff, but there really is a different thing about having to go through it yourself, walking in your own shoes. And then when you can, like you were saying, TJ, when you can take that and then extrapolate that to others, like mm -hmm. that is such a gift again, because you yourself have had to throw away that script 
you mm-hmm. can now see when someone else does something from your perspective, something kind of queer. Well, I wouldn't have done mm-hmm. it that way. Well, I wouldn't have followed that particular theology. Well, I wouldn't have you know picked up this belief or that belief. Well, sure. But scripts are powerful, right? Uh-huh. The game has very, very, very strong rules and very, very strong scorekeepers and very, very, very outrageous punishments for people that break those norms, right? Whether that's just like bullying and name calling, you know, the kinds of terms that people throw around like slurs or actual like hate crimes. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot at stake if you don't play the game. But in some ways, I think that is such a good preparation for asceticism and for martyrdom, Uh right? Giving up yourself to learn these things, sometimes not because of your own choosing, is practice for the Christian walk, right? If you've endured persecution because you care a little bit more about people, you're willing to be a little bit more generous, or people were pointing out, you know, girls or guys, and you're like, I don't really understand that, and people make fun of you, you're learning what it's like to have to endure. Then as probably as you get older, you start to step into that for your own self. Like it isn't just like downloaded belief, it becomes a learned and embodied belief. And not everybody has the opportunity to do that. And and again, this isn't to like speak down to our straight friends, but like when you're playing by the rules of the game and the game is made for you, it's a little bit harder to step out of that world and accept someone else's different viewpoint on things. But as queer people, we've got a whole lot of practice in doing that. I often, when I think about that, I sometimes talk about, I think being queer made me more merciful over time or more hospitable over time because I had to live a certain life. And like at different times in my life, in different contexts, I've been like marginalized or out, become made an outcast or pariah because I was queer. Like if queer people are oppressed in your context, you're, you have a different experience of being queer and that may produce different virtues sometimes, right? Like I mentioned, I become more merciful, I think, as a Christian disciple because I've been queer and I've seen people oppress myself or people like me. So maybe you want to be more merciful in general to people who struggle to fit in. But it, I don't know, it's just that, it's that, that process of discipleship, those steps you take on that path, I think they definitely are the, the seedbeds of the virtue of mercy or the virtue of yeah. hospitality. And yeah, and I can always appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I've also been in contexts where being queer is like not commented on or it's like not realized or something. So, I mean, maybe that, maybe those people who are in that context don't experience that same sort of growth of mercy and hospitality, but it definitely, mm. I think, can be there if you're in context where it's, you're marginalized in some way. Yeah, for sure. And even the like, I mean, as we've been calling it, the game of just like, not having the cultural goods as readily accessible to you, even if people aren't like commenting directly on it, though, uh, usually they'll be like, well, you know, some sweet old lady at church will be like, so are you dating anybody right now? (laughs) And, you know, now I'm just like, nah, I'm really content being single. It, It helps just the line of like, oh yeah, what are the goods that I'm seeking? Marriage is a good, but it's not the ultimate good. And that, ready to sacrifice in a sense the approval the easy approval of others for you checking yeah. the boxes along the way going to the first revoice one of the most just beautiful things was and that first revoice i think was particularly mostly represented by gay men and same-sex men. and 
was everybody singing it is well uh just mm. really loudly in this old historic church it is well it is well you know like uh, whatever waves of suffering may come um the lyrics i'm blanking on right now but <laughs> the just classic hymn and you could just see them these are people who have endured loss and yeah. who are are struggling in a lot of different ways but they are they're holding on to christ as their anchor and are able to say it is well and that note of sacrifice i think is just so critical to the christian journey like if there is no sacrifice in our life we will not know christ because yeah. we like so often meet him in his sufferings through our own sufferings through our mm. own denying you know sometimes good sometimes deceitful things from the world but it's in that denial that we find Christ meeting us you know, I was just thinking about how how suffering in some ways is sort of like a great equalizer so even for people that aren't unfairly persecuted they understand suffering through the effects of sin right but again it's like that's where I think so much of being a Christ follower is helpful in learning how to be a good human to other humans. You know, I think so much of this uh, in, in the Anglican liturgy, there's a part where there's a corporate confession. So everyone together in unison confesses their sins. And then there's a proclamation of absolution. And that's all done together. And but what's awesome is no matter what anyone in there is confessing, right? Maybe someone's confessed like, I don't know, I kind of was a little bit snippy to a cashier. Maybe someone else is like, I laundered money. They all together corporately confess the sins and together they hear uh in some forms of Anglican liturgy the comfortable words which is where the minister turns around and says hear what comfortable words our savior jesus christ tells us come to me all you who travail and are heavy laden i will give you rest take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy my yoke is light everyone hears those words together again it's this coming to christ that is a great equalizer and i think we become ministers of that equalizing through our queerness because we've deeply em embodied what it's like to be cast aside to be pushed off right now someone who is you know straight or whatever i think if they focus on their sin they can kind of realize yep we're all kind of in this spot where we have something happening to us that isn't great right but you know queer people in one form or another probably understand yep this isn't great to be where I'm at, whether again, because of it's teasing or something as crazy as hate crimes or things like that. They're very, very aware of their state in life. Something is broken, right? The game doesn't work for me. Whatever it is that helps someone realize that when you're able to come to the world as, hey, I'm just another human, right? I'm not someone who is, you know, I earned my degree from this school. I have, I make this much money. That's not who I am. No, who I am is someone who is designed and made for connection with others, with God, with community, with a story, with myth, with worship, whatever those things are. That openness to connectivity, I think, is the first step in so many ways, right? Maybe a 12-step program would tell us that. Maybe Christianity would tell us that. Maybe other religions would tell us that. But I think, again, as queer people, we have this special connection to that because in some ways, like a gift, it's been just presented to us whether or not we wanted to accept it. But we get to take from that the experiences that come with needing to understand this radical openness to ourselves and to others. Another good that I've considered, and this is from the, I guess, Episcopalian theologian Wesley Hill. In one of his books, I think Spiritual Friendship, 
he makes kind it's not offhanded comment but he just throws in maybe queer people have a special genius for making for friendship with people of their own sex right like that's the basic point of the premise i'm curious <laughs> will michelle would you guys think about that as kind of asexual people i assume you would also track with that but perhaps not and then a kind of as a flip side of that and this is especially from david frank he's mentioned this in the past sometimes he's been in situations where when he's with a woman, as a queer, same-sex attracted man, the sexual energy is low or not really there. So it, it changes the the dynamic of the relationship in that they're not part of the game, as you might say. Well, yeah, like it's not yeah. that game like, oh, like, oh, you're oh, you're trying to date me or oh, like that sexual energy is coming from you. It's a different dynamic in the relationship sometimes. More sisterly, maybe you might say. I don't mm. know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what do you guys think about those? both of those ideas as gifts of potential being queer. Now, I, I, I really, I think honestly what you've said there, you've taken the words right out of my mouth, TJ. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the greatest gifts. One of the things that I've, I've for myself wanted to be is just a safe person. That's just sort of like a goal of mine. But it is really cool because even, even though, I'm sorry, straight people listening to this, I'm gonna make a little joke at your expense. You know, we all know of a lot of straight people who are like, oh, I can always tell my gaydar is so good. And often it's the people <laughs> that say that that have like terrible, terrible gaydars and they can never tell actually. But even, even, even with straight friends who don't know that I'm queer, but also aren't like picking up that I'm queer, they're able to, they're able to clock something and you're totally uh-huh. right. There is something more of that kind of sisterly safe thing. So you can get away with, and I mean it that way, I'm saying it that way on purpose. You can get away with being more open in your friendship uh-huh. because they're not sensing this kind of heterosexual sexual energy from you. Right. Yeah. They're not thinking when you're saying something, they're not, they're not viewing like you're trying to get in their pants or something like that. Like mm-hmm. there's just something about your spirit, um, the vibe that there's just, there's a vibe of just not potentially becoming a weird reply guy or something like that. Like I said, it's sort of, it's a funny dynamic because I've had it happen more than once where like clearly I'm inside someone's safe zone, but they're still like, oh, like you should date my friend who's a, who's a woman. And it's like, you, you got something right here and also something terribly wrong. Um, <laughs> for me, I feel like I'm probably a lot more straight passing than Will is, but even when I've told people, it hasn't always had an effect. I've told men before, Oh, I'm asexual. And their response is, Oh, don't worry. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. Like, no, 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 no bridge to cross. We are not crossing any bridge here, but <laughs> I feel like it hasn't been taken as seriously. Maybe because women are you know, seen as less sexual already. We're already almost seen as asexual beings. Anyways, mm-hmm. like something to be pursued. It is a conquest. And then magically you marry them and suddenly they're sexual, I suppose, within purity culture. <laughs> but I haven't ever really noticed. That. I've definitely gotten a lot of people that like when I get close to them, they're like, oh, I've, you know, I feel so safe. I feel like I can tell you things I couldn't tell other people. That kind of thing that I felt like came from more of a queer <laughs> experience but it was never never quite what will has experienced and i'm extremely jealous of that i i crave that for myself i don't want to be perceived in that the way that you know that signifies that i'm playing the game because i'm not but it feels like no matter how i intend to portray myself or even what i say i am still immersed in the game i think part of that comes out of the kind of Western history with 
that has formed itself into this toxic masculinity that there's just a sharper contrast that it kind of makes it easier to stand out as a guy at times of <laughs> just like hey we can like talk about our emotions and like be close with other people and not be like afraid of it somehow hurting our sense of you know manliness that like you know outside of the sexual intimacy but it's like mm -hmm. yeah we can just like it's chill I think women already get a lot of those benefits. They already get to have those close intimate relationships. I could at any point have cuddled with any of my female friends, even if we weren't super close. It was just, yeah, it's intimacy. It's fine. It's not, but no, no homo, you know, it just, it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm very appreciative that women have gotten to experience that kind of openness to each other that men, gay or straight or otherwise should be able to, as human beings should be able to experience. And I think it's, very sad mm. that that is not that they don't get the feminine friendship experience perhaps i already get all the benefits of being <laughs> queer as a woman <laughs> but it is a different experience it helps highlight the question to me of and i don't know how important it is always to identify this um or whether you could ever really distinguish it but this like oh how much of this, you know, these goods that are coming from our queer experiences are truly just this like social positional, you know, just like we come out mm -hmm. of a society that does X, Y, Z, and we are queering that norm and experiencing what has always been meant <laughs> to happen <Yes. laughs> versus something that maybe if, let's say, men and women were already great at making all these brotherly, sisterly relationships well, within the sexes and across the sexes would there still be this like subsection of the population that we might code as, you know, queer in some way that are less oriented towards heterosexual marriages um, and procreation. And they're like, Oh, and they still go above and beyond and, and mm. have like an, a, you know, a, a special genius to, of making mm. friendships. Maybe I'm open to that. It's definitely easier to see when there's just this, or like deep trench in society that we're like climbing out of. Yeah. I mean, historically, right. You know, lots of different cultures have found special ways to appreciate, you know, say trans people, for instance, um, kind of like you're saying, you know, even in cultures where it was a little bit less hard coded about like toxic masculinity, you better, you know, get James oil and mow the grass and chop wood or whatever. Uh, so even in cultures where it was a little less that where everybody was hunting and gathering, right. Even, even then there was a special appreciation for people that were, different, odd, queer, we might, we might kind of anachronistically say. But in some ways, again, like there is something kind of, like you're saying, David, I think there's something, there's something heavenly about that, right? That we can look mm -hmm. at different people and find different, interesting and unique things about them. Because ultimately, we'd understand that there, there is something beautiful about who they are specifically, whether or not they're queer, even if they're straight, they're interesting, right? But I mean, because like, think about this, right? You know, even within the 12 apostles, there was still an inner circle. Even through all the people that followed Christ, there was still Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right? There's, mm. there's, there's whatever it was. It's hard to know these things because humans have, have different things about them and different things that click and connect. You know, there was, there was something special and unique about those relationships. And so I think that there's something about 
the the queerness that we have that breaks us, you know, maybe in some ways something that becomes too much of individuality. Um, there is something definitely in our culture fueled by consumerism, fueled by brands, fueled by platform building and this thing and that thing that is very anti-human and in some ways anti the individual person, the human behind so many of these things. We've become turned into numbers reified because we're marketing data. You know, we've been turned into clicks and comments and likes and stats and analytics and data science. And there's something about queerness, I think, that, and you could again, turn this into something like a critique of everyone's a special snowflake, but there's something about the, the heart behind that, the fundamental yes that we could say to that that I think is very, very Christian, right? As people who are called by God, it isn't just the group that's called by God, even though the group, the church, is called by God corporately. Like, each of us has our name written in the book of life. Some special name that no one knows, whatever that means, right? But there's something special about each and every one of us. You know, we believe that we can connect with other people in special ways, just like Jesus connected specially with Lazarus or with John. There's something special to those relationships. And there's something maybe sometimes a little bit queer about those relationships. You know, if you've ever had friends of the same sex that you've been really close to, maybe you've gotten weird looks or something like that because you're so close. Or maybe a close friend of the opposite sex that you'd kind of People would expect to feel some sort of sexual tension, but there's not because you're gay, you know, and there's just something that throws people off. I think it's very Christian to live in the world in such a way that throws people off. That's a little bit weird. I think it's very Christian, right? When, when, when Paul goes to Mars Hill and he says, oh, there's this unknown God here. And he just starts talking. Obviously, the, you know, there people did just have these open air conversations. But then Paul is like talking about the resurrection. And then it says just before that people wanted to hear some new thing. So even Paul's style of even just the content at the bare minimum was a little bit queer, a little bit different. The way that he goes about it is so weird. I'm going to answer for you the unknown God. But again, as queer Christians, we can do that for people, right? It's like, maybe let's say that there is sort of this false idol of the special snowflake, but we know of that unknown God behind the special snowflake, right? There's actually something deeply spiritual about the unknown God and something deeply spiritual about a special snowflake mentality. Both of those lead us to the divine God who loves each and every one of us individually, specially, personally, right? That's, that's in there, right? That's Christian. Mm. And I think for, for a lot of people out there that are hearing nasty, icky things from Christians, to hear a Christian say to them, I agree with you. I agree with you on that, right? Think about how Paul could have gone there. Ew, all of these gods. Ew, that's so bad, right? No, no, he's mm -hmm. like, I see that you are a deeply spiritual people. In fact, there's this idol there to an unknown God that's so spiritual. You don't, you don't want to miss any of them, right? Paul engages in this yes saying. He's not an anti. He is yes saying. And I think there's so much about queer culture that, again, it's heavenly. It's not something we have to like kind of proselytize and baptize and, and like redeem as if it's like so horrible and broken and it's just poisoned until we as Christians come along and fix it. No, no, no. As human beings designed for liturgy, for worship, that's going to be built into the things that we do because we're made for worship, because we're made to desire bigger things. That's going to come across in every community, especially ones that are marginalized, because they're going to go back to their roots. The roots of all human culture is that kind of religious impulse. 
So there's a lot of religious, in some way, echoing through uh, minority movements. I'm wondering, can we talk a little bit more about how a queer perspective destabilizes, deconstructs, subverts, or reinforces a lot of cultural communities' emphasis on marriage mm. and romance? And I just ask because it may seem obvious to us, maybe, but a lot of my straight friends or like people in my communities, they wonder because they value marriage and or the way that romance is constructed to be part of marriage and like contemporary marriage norms, they, they value it so highly. How does being queer relate to that? Show different goods, deconstruct what, what is on offer typically? I think one way that it does that is it's great when there's marriage. That's a beautiful, you know, communion of two people. God is watching. It's, it's a unification, but there has to be this deep friendship with that as well. And I think that's something that queer people really bring to the table with that is I think a lot of queer people are seeking this deep intimacy, especially within like side B communities where marriage is not always offered for them. They are seeking a larger community. They're seeking, you know, maybe celibate partnerships with people. What is very, very important to them is their relationship with Christ and also the relationship to the people around them. I don't think that view is taking down marriage or anything like that. But I think there's a lot to be learned from the ways that queer people pursue intimacy in their lives that other people can pick up in their own marriages and outside of their marriages and how they're continuing to maintain their community outside of their marriage. How you know, maybe they shouldn't go off with their husband or wife and no longer be an integral part of their community because they have each other. I think the way queer people kind of look at that often is a much broader community. And there's importance in that. And I think that is also like reflectant of what it's going to be like in heaven. We're not just going to have one singular person. We're going to have communion with everyone. And we're going to know God better through that. And obviously, you learn so much about God through a marriage, but you also learn so much about him through maintaining a beautiful and healthy relationship with the people around you. Mm. Can't just be an island with it. Yeah, that's a beautiful, I think, example, Michelle, of how the experience queerness slash singleness is both subverting a lot of cultural expectations with marriage um, and again, then rebringing it back into its more designed context. Marriage was already always meant to be part of a community. It is to be not only it creates community and through procreation, it's also not ex nihilo. It, it also was embedded within a network where there's mutual support that happens in a much more complex network. And I don't know, just the, that often I experience that subversion unto the point of like re re-edifying it, re-strengthening it to be really what it's supposed to be mm-hmm. or how it can be healthier. Not on that like friendship note of some people depend on their spouse kind of as like their only friend, their only intimate. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that puts so much stress on marriage and where it's like, oh, I don't have a married spouse. I'm not depending on, the, I'm not looking to date 
working in order to try to find that person so that I can do that. I say, well, how else can I build this into my life? And then I like, oh, my married friends really need that too. How can I be that friend to them too so that they're not lonely or trying to, or putting too much pressure on their spouse? Yeah, I think that kind of culture almost creates holes that we feel like we need to fill. Like I need a girlfriend and we need to be married here around this time before I'm, you know, such and such age. And she needs to be, you know, she needs to have this personality. And like, my mom wants her to be able to cook for me. And I think that she should be able to do this. And we have all these expectations for someone that we haven't even met yet. And this perhaps shouldn't be so much a hole to fill that we've already created and casted the hole for, but a intimate relationship with one person that you get to know and the whole should be created around them and your budding relationship as you learn about yourselves through that and learn about each other. And the whole should be able to shift in its shape over time as your relationship changes. I think having a community and getting to know people in that sort of way allows the whole to change shapes and for you to be receptive to that. Whereas if you have this expectation of I, me and my future spouse are going to be married and this is going to be my number one best friend and my support system and everyone else is going to be, you know, subpar compared to them, you're going to have to have a very well-structured whole. They're going to have to like meet all these expectations because you do need to get that from somewhere. The problem is it just should not all be from your spouse. And I think that's a beautiful thing that the queer focus on community has to contribute to these more normative views of marriage. I don't know, just like growing up in the church, I have known a lot of people who have had, in my opinion, pretty weird views on like what marriage should be. Um, I had a friend who recently tried to date a guy and he had immediate expectations for like, okay, we should be boyfriend, girlfriend within like four dates. If not, then like it's not going fast enough. And after that, we need to be married within a year or else it's not meeting it. And I was like, well, he's known you for like two weeks. Like, is that representative of you and like your relationship? Or is that representative of the hole that he wants to fit you in? You are better than that. You're not a peg to be filled in a hole with. You are beautiful and you are unique and you're <laughs> a child of God that is not something to be shoved into someone else's hole of expectations that they have created without you. Yeah, just thinking about like, what is it that we can do to queer that relationship? I mean, in some ways, like Christ already does that, right? You know, he yeah. is a celibate, single human being, right? Yeah. Who lives and dies and then now has, you know, early release resurrection body, but he's fully... God and fully man, as we know from, you know, the church's historic teaching, fully, right? Fully human. I think that's kind of what we're called to do by putting a pebble in people's shoes, by just being queer, by being who we are, right? When we find creative ways of being able to connect with people that aren't just in this kind of siloed view of like man and woman, husband and wife, but like in this, this truly and this isn't to speak, to speak down on marriage, but I, I don't want to speak any any higher or lower of marriage than like Paul did, right? Huh. I desire people to be like me, single. <laughs> 
it's a, it's the better state to be in. Like he's, he literally says that that's Bible, right? That's Bible. I thought we like cared about that. He says it's better. Again, Jesus kind of proves that for us too. I don't want to apologize for the goods that Paul seems to be claiming from that. Now, even if you take Paul to be saying, okay, well, the second coming of Christ is going to happen like in his lifetime and that's why it's better. Okay, fine. Even so, like life is still short, right? Mm-hmm. One way or another, whether it's because of like economic collapse or just because any of us get in a car accident tomorrow, life is short. We better hurry on trying to show people the love of God. One way or another, that's still a core message of Paul that I think any of us can understand, no matter what our interpretation is on what exactly he means by that. Mm-hmm. But again, that's sort of a queering, isn't it? Right? Like, especially in a society that Paul is speaking to, where like you couldn't own property or make a whole bunch of money just as a woman, but Paul is speaking to women just as much as he is to men for them Mm -hmm. to be called to not getting married, to being single, to serving the church. But you notice that throughout Paul's whole life, who are the people that he often plants these churches with? It's these kind of like entrepreneurial women. Well, why is it that those people multiple times throughout the book of Acts have this weird position both in society and in just kind of personal flexibility to do that? Maybe there's something a little bit queer about them, right? This mm-hmm. The way of living your your world in such a way, not just that you have financial flexibility, but like you're the kind of person that other people are drawn to, or again, you live into that asceticism, that giving, that selflessness, like like Lydia was. I think that's who, who Peter heals, right? Um, like, I think that's the kind of sort of weird thing that we get to show other people, that openness that we can project people towards by showing a creative, different way of living. No, no, no. Marriage is not going to solve all of your problems. It's a holy thing. It can be a healthy thing, but it also isn't permanent, right? Yes. In Amen. the future state, <laughs> they are neither married nor given in marriage. Mm-hmm. Some people's works, to connect this with another thought, some people's works are wood, hay, and stubble, and some people are precious stones. And again, draw whatever conclusions you want from that. But I know that one thing will last in the world to come, and that's going to be our communities that we build. And again, you can get caught up in that little individual microcosm and miss the forest for the trees. Yes, marriage is a microcosm of the church. Of course it is. But don't forget, as, as Paul says at the end of Ephesians, I'm actually really just talking about the church. I've said all of this stuff about marriage is a great mystery, but I'm really actually talking about something much, 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 much more important. Christ and the mm. church. That's the point of marriage. It's just an example. And again, I mean that in the nicest possible way, but that it's just an example. And that's where I feel like my kind of having to like dive deep into like, what is marriage? What does it mean to mm. be to, for man and women? And I feel like I've had to look into this more uh, in Mm. part, especially probably like defending a side B position of like, okay, Mm. I have to ask these questions of the scriptures because I'm have same sex attraction. And as I dig down deeper, like there's just more questions that come out like, okay, like I really believe that then I gotta, I gotta believe that deeply. I gotta know what it means. And in some ways by queerly standing aside from the cultural scripts with marriage and de-idolizing it from where people have put it on a pedestal that I've actually ended up becoming more traditionalist than most American evangelicals uh, and affirm heteronormativity in a way that most of America does 
doesn't, even if they're more heteronormative in other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's like, no, I actually believe that this like difference, this difference yeah. between the male and female is especially God-designed chemistry and relationship that is also a pointer to this like divine and created like coming together and having this unique relationship that the the marriage supper of the lamb is you know like one kind of version of that uh kind of taking place or one way of that being expressed and so i like oh i actually see that as something really special something about this header i don't Mm -hmm. want to destroy you know the the categories of male and female but i think that that's it's god's design and it's good and also the reproduction of the entire you know human species designs on there being some heteronormative sexual orientations going on in sexual relationships even though christ is not primarily concerned with biological reproduction he's like that's mm-hmm. a good care for your kin care for your you know cousins for your children do that if that's what you're doing but the kingdom i'm building is not dependent on that he's not destroying his own creation that he loved and designed um, mm-hmm. but he's he's raising it up to to something more than what we can put in our own hands. One thing that I'm, so when I, I've gone through a similar journey to what you're describing, David Frank, and when I talk about it with my straight friends, these are mostly straight friends in the U.S., okay? I'm basically trying to convince them that marriage is more norm by childbearing and education of children than they realize, because typically <laughs> they... I don't think they had like a romantic view, like marriage is finding mm. my soulmate that I just have pleasure mm. with all the time or something. And maybe kids are like an accessory to our relationship sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's, some, it's something more like that, even though I don't know if they would say in those words. But then when sometimes they've shifted to, to norm it more by children as more like a normal part of a, what marriage is for in this current age. But then they start to talk in terms like marriage is for the continuation of family. Mm. And I immediately, I don't like that formulation because, of course, having children is an important, like, physical, part of physical reproduction of the human species. Check. Mm-hmm. Having children is that. But I, I think side B can show us in part, and other, not just side B only, but building family is more than just having children. Like, for example, there's covenant brotherhoods, there's joining lay monastic orders, there's joining monasteries, there's godparenthood, which is, of course, related to children. That's another Christian kinship form. There's also celibate partnerships. I mean, like there's a lot of ways that kinsh- that Christians have attempted to build family that are not directly about bearing children, even though, of course, it's related because children, um, human beings are increasing their number through having children on yeah. earth in this age. So I don't know. I, I think Side B helped me see that, uh, just resist even just connecting family only towards marriage, right? Marriage is an important part of family, like physical reproduction, but it's not the only way of forming kinship in Christian terms. Right. So I don't know. That's some sort of other deconstruction that I think queer people, side B can help people see. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think I love how you said that, TJ. It's like, I think LGBT people in total can help people see that. But I think there's Mm -hmm. something that like you're mentioning, you know, as folks who are side B and and proud of that, um, Mm -hmm. there is still, I think, within the wider LGBT movement that everything is about marriage. And I get, I understand why I get it. I'm not arguing about that or the strategy, but like, great, awesome. But there's still this kind of lingering thing that I think needs to be queered, right? Mm -hmm. Too much has been borrowed from the straights, you know, in terms of this, this 
idolatrous placement of marriage. But I mean, but I think that's the beauty, right? Like, what is true life for the Christian? I mean, this is what Jesus tells the Samaritan woman about. This is what he tells Nicodemus about. It's to be born again, right? The most true way that I am born, was born, am continuing to be born, was not when my first birthday was. My true, actual true birth started when Christ's side was pierced and out came from his wound slash womb, blood and water, the amniotic Mm. fluid of salvation. That was Mm. my birth. You know, Christ is for me the, and this is biblical language too, the progenitor of my birth. Christ bore me out of this, the blood and water out of his body. That's how I became born. And it's like, so in in just like this way, it's like, there's more to family than just a husband and a wife getting married, right? There's more to birth than just a baby coming out of a birth canal, right? Mm -hmm. In this, in this Christian terminology, there's always this other layer, both below and above that, that if we Mm -hmm. don't see that we're missing it in the same way that, right? Like I've heard other people say this a lot, but like, it isn't a Christian marriage just to have a heterosexual man and a heterosexual woman get married. Contrary to what you might hear. No, no. (laughs) A Christian marriage is this. When somebody loves the other person as Christ loved the church, that's a Christian marriage, right? Mm. And so that's the thing. You see a lot of people defending, not to get political there, but about like the sanctity of marriage. And then you hear about these people's personal lives, right? You know, you had like Josh Duggar running like the family research council or something like that. And then we see what he was doing. It's like, that's not traditional family. Family is Christ loving the mystical body, right? Christ Mm. had a physical human man body. I have a physical human man body and I am the bride of Christ. Queer. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? But again, in Christian terms, everything is like that. Everything's a little bit different than you might have expected. But again, that's mm. the story of salvation to begin with. We would expect nothing less. I think similar experience where, that I've actually experienced is around men and women living together in the same household. Yeah, you might know about that. <laughs> <laughs> living in a community house. I remember, when I think, you know, when I was younger, I'd be like, what? Like, that's so, you know, like basically immoral for men and women to, to live in the same house. And now I just forget that that like even was in my mind and might be in other people's minds because it's just so normal for me to live with other guys and women uh, with various straight and non-straight, you know, sexual attractions, though pros and cons come with, come with all of it. And just the like, it would have been easy to say, oh, that's bad mm-hmm. to put men and women together in the same household. And it's like, well, when you're mature enough and you have some care and wisdom and you know what you're building or planting, you can think about some of the actual really goods that happen when you have brothers and sisters living together. But you know, if you do it wrong, you could be causing some pain. Yeah, I agree. Can I say one more thing? I, I, and I'm so happy we had this conversation because this was one of the key questions that we heard for some of our listeners. What mm. are the goods to being queer? Because I think a lot of them are Protestant. So in a lot of Protestant spaces, there's, it's mostly just seen as brokenness or disorderedness mm, mm-hmm. or something thereof. So I'm hoping, yeah, I also hope that conversation can continue because when all you hear is that God may love you, but you have this notable problem, notable 
evil, notable disorder, like whatever trope people are using to describe yourselves, it can sure. really turn you against the love of God that you don't see his tenderness mm -hmm. anymore. You don't see his possibility for you. You don't see the culture of scripts that are available for you to live a life that's good or flourishing or, you know, those things. So, yeah, I yeah. also hope that conversation can continue. No, I think you're right, though. But just as you know, David was saying, it's all about taking people to the face of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about taking people to that spot where they can see themselves as God sees them, which like I mentioned, that whole Ignatian thing is about that. It's not a matter of looking in the mirror and seeing yourself with your own eyes. This is very phenomenological, right? But rather putting Jesus's eyes in our eyeballs and looking back and seeing through Christ's eyes, ourself. And Amen. in that way, seeing an image of Christ in ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think there's some part of us that reacts to, oh, the culture is so everybody gets a participation medal, blah, 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 that we've almost reacted against this Christian principle of looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, thanks be to God, I'm a son or daughter of the Father. Christ oh, has redeemed me, and I can look in the mirror and see beauty. I can see something that is meant for eternity. Like, that's who I am. Right. And again, mm. that's real openness against false self-confidence, against like beauty products and like whatever they're selling on TikTok. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's about seeing with real eyes. And I think that is like ultimately where that humanness comes back into it, like mm -hmm. to see not through a mirror dimly or darkly, but as things truly are right to yeah. grow up in that sense, as Paul talks about. Amen. Thank you listeners for joining with us on a lot of this verbal processing and connecting with each other and learning and listening and exploring as we try to answer this uh, somewhat simple but extremely complex question. Uh, I hope that for those who are very comfortable with queering, that this has added some depth to kind of your, like, what are the ends of queering? Uh, what are the purposes here? And for those who still have a, a kind of gut reaction towards the word queer, that maybe this has softened you up a little bit to the, that it's not just a destructive force, but it can be, yeah, really maybe you can categorize that word a little differently now. So that's all for now. Thanks so much, Will, Michelle, and TJ. This was good. Thanks, TJ. Thanks, David. You all are just beautiful gems. Thanks so much for this work that you do in serving the church. Thank you. Hey, listeners, I want to let you know about the Communion and Shalom Patreon. Joining the Patreon community not only supports this podcast, but gives you the opportunity to listen to bonus content, give input on future episodes, and submit questions for a patron-only Q&A. We're so thankful for the support and encouragement from so many listeners, and we hope that this podcast continues to be meaningful to you.